Learning and development has changed a lot, especially in the last 20 to 30 years. Whether you're a seasoned learning and development professional, you're new to instructional design, or if you are kind of in between, you've seen probably a lot of change. Change is definitely imminent in learning and development. So today, Joe and I are going to dive in and talk about skills critical to being successful as a learning and development professional. You're listening to the Instructional Redesign Podcast. I'm Joe Suarez, and I'm joined as always by Kara North. I have to admit, even though I'm pretty happy in my current role, I look at a lot of job postings in learning and development, and to me, it is absolutely crazy the variability out there, Joe. I've seen so many different things that have been on these uh, these postings. What what are some things that you're seeing on job postings right now? Yeah, I'm seeing a wide range of variability in job postings myself. Uh, things as old-fashioned as talking about the ADDIE process specifically is the job responsibility all the way up to talking about agile methodology as the framework that will be used in the job. It really is interesting to see the kind of the wide variety. So what we really want to do today is just kind of dive in on kind of both sides of the spectrum. Obviously, to be a well-rounded learning development professional, not only do you need good soft skills, but you also need strong technical acumen. So I'm going to be kind of tossing out more of the soft skill stuff, and Joe's going to be tossing out more of the technical stuff. And we're going to go kind of go volley back and forth and share with you some of our skills that we probably rate as critical for learning development professionals. And for me, starting with the soft skills, the first one for me is curiosity. And the reason I say curiosity is because, as we said earlier, change is certainly imminent in this profession. You're seeing so much with technology. You're seeing so much with legal defensibility around learning and development where more organizations need that compliance training and more organizations want their employees to be more human and happy, which is fantastic. So having curiosity as a learning development professional, not only does it help you keep your own learning going, which we know is so important with everything that we do, because if we're not investing in ourselves, why on earth would we expect someone else to invest into our learning products that we're creating? But it also helps you keep a pulse on the organization. So having that curiosity, learning more about the organization that you're working at, kind of see what what's making it tick. Who are the people that really are the backbone of the organization? It's so critical. Another piece of that, and I'm sure Joe's going to touch on this here in a moment, is exploring technologies with your curiosity. So, Joe, what do you think about curiosity? I think it plays a central role in what an instructional designer is and does. Uh, because we have to come in as many subject matter experts whenever we start a new project. Um, so we're obviously working with true subject matter experts, but we have to become little subject matter experts ourselves to fully understand what's involved and build those effective learning solutions. And one of the areas where I would love to see a lot more curiosity is around creating more user-centric learning solutions. Specifically, I'm talking about formal user experience design processes. So on the front end, that means conducting what's considered more 
uh, user research in our analysis and then using those insights that are gained from that process to inform the design of our learning solutions. So for example, let's say my training audience is HVAC technicians. So that's heating, air conditioning, and ventilation, I think. Um, these are the people that go out and install furnaces, repair your air conditioner, and things like that. So I have two choices. I can sit in my corporate office and kind of have a cursory understanding of who my training audience is and take someone else's word for what my training audience does day to day and what their job environment looks like, what they're out there doing. Or I can actually go right along with a technician. I can job shadow in that format. I can conduct interviews. I can send out surveys. I can do lots of things to do formal user research to figure out who my training audience really is, what their day-to-day -day really looks like, uh, what their window of opportunity to take training is. Uh, so I might, as a result of having conducted that research, change my learning solution from, say, like a 20-minute e-learning course that they would have to sit down and take at a PC to something that fits more into their day-to-day -day flow, like a podcast that they can listen to in between job sites. So that's one area that I really think we as a profession can do a lot better job at. Joe, I think it's great that you bring up user experience design because I know especially now with kind of this learning experience design that's really hot, it focuses a lot on like the emotional piece of learning, also um, empathy. So how do you have empathy for the people that are taking your learning? So I, I love that. I think that's really, really critical and something that is the right thing to do um, depending on kind of where your organization is and all of that. And with that, I do think another skill that's a little bit, I think it's kind of a blended between a soft and a technical, depending. Um, I definitely think you need to have good project management skills as a learning development professional. Depending on the kind of products that you're creating, it can take anywhere between, I don't know, three to four weeks, kind of on the low end, depending on what kind of material material that you have, all the way up to like year, two year campaigns, that there's a lot of different kind of cogs that need to work and spin around to make the whole machine happen. And being able to kind of balance that juggle that and more specifically being able to deal with all of the different hurdles and obstacles that come with that is super critical. Now, I know that there are different uh, certifications that you can get in that. There's the um, the CAPM, which is a certified associate project manager. And then of course, there's the project management professional or the PMP. I don't know, and again, it depends on kind of where you're at, if you really need to get those in instructional design, but I do think it does help to at least look at uh, what's called the PMBOK, the Project Management Book of Knowledge, I believe is what it's called. Um, it's always good to just take a look at that, kind of see kind of this way of doing project management and you'll also find throughout your career that it really kind of depends on where you're at what tools are used and so forth for project management so again you may or may not need that credential but just having kind of the patience having the organization and knowing what it takes to start a project get that momentum throughout a project and then finish strong and then also setting it up for a life cycle and evaluation plan is absolutely critical. 
Yeah, I think project management is one that I think everyone at some point as their career develops is going to start to manage aspects of projects, if not full projects. And you're going to get to a point where you're going to be responsible for juggling multiple things at once and making sure different milestones are accomplished in a timely manner and keeping things on track, keeping other people on track uh, for things that they've agreed to. And whether we realize it or not, all of that really is project management. And we can learn a lot by, like you said, reading that PMBOK. So I'd like to transition over to a technical skill, and that is learning analytics. Now, data analytics is a increasingly useful skill in the 21st century to know how to use. Really, it's a lot of applied statistics, but knowing how to wrangle data together, knowing which data sources to kind of use and leverage and how to get that all together and organize it and sort through it and find insights, all that knowledge is is becoming increasingly useful and uh, probably crucial for learning and development, not only because we need to prove our worth uh, through metrics, but also we we should be measuring what we do at all times. We as learning professionals should be able to back up the things we do with data. So we can ask up front in the analysis phase, what are the metrics associated with that problem? How do we know a problem even exists? And then we can use that data to prove if the learning solution we've implemented has had any kind of an impact. And it's through that type of learning analytics that we can prove our value, possibly even ROI. So Kara, on the soft skills side, what does it look like to kind of prove our value? It's a great question. And I love that you brought up learning analytics because I think that it's finally time and it's great that there's been such a push toward getting this data and getting this buy-in because a lot of times we just kind of push courses out and then they just live out there for a while and we don't think about them until it's a year out and it's like, oh yeah, we need to make an update to that course and you don't really get any data. So I love that there's been a bigger push on the learning analytics. But what about the standards of design at your organization? One of my mentors, Dr. Don Snyder, has really instilled in me this concept of setting what good looks like at an organization. And as a learning development professional, I feel like that is certainly something that you should be doing in your organization. If you haven't, you should have that conversation at your organization. And what I mean by this, and Tim Slade has talked in the past about how he did this uh, when he was working at GoDaddy, but setting what good design and learning products look like at your organization is absolutely critical. Number one, uh, going back to what Joe said earlier about the user experience, it makes it uniform. So they know what a product at your organization looks like. They know what to expect from it. But it also really kind of helps elevate your entire department uh, when a lot of times people don't really want to go through what we're putting out there. So making sure that you have the conversations about, you know, how long do you want your things to be, the variety of your product and kind of the cadence and follow-up, all that's absolutely critical for setting that success standard. So have that conversation. What does good look like? It's critical to a learning development professional to be having those conversations, don't you think, Joe? Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. 
And I think that it's really the responsibility of each of us to make sure that there is clarity around what good looks like. And that kind of stems from the top down. So we should be having some direction from our higher ups about what good looks like. But if we're not getting that, I think we need to just go to our direct managers and say, hey, can we kind of establish what good looks like on our team since we're not kind of getting any clear direction from above? And then if you're not having any success with your manager, then maybe with your colleagues on your team, you can do that or just, you know, yourself or maybe if you're a team of one. Um, You know, part of the reason I got into UX design so heavily is because I read a book that actually is titled The User Experience Design Team of One. And it goes into kind of how one person might have to be the evangelist for the user, the end user, really. Once there's a clear vision around what good looks like, I think teams and organizations can really come together and accomplish some great things. I've seen it happen and I've seen it not happen. And the difference between the two is really striking. The next technical skill I want to talk about is code. Now, a lot of people will come out and say, everyone should learn to code. Ideally, that would be great, but I don't think it's necessary for everyone to learn to code. Not even people in like an instructional design role that end up doing some development. But what I think most people in learning and development should at least know is the power of code and what code can do, if not knowing how specifically to code themselves. So as an example, there's front-end development and back-end development, and a lot of times you'll hear this described as the stack. So you have a lot of calls for full-stack developers, and what they mean is they want people that know how to design things on the front-end, both visually and you know wireframe designs, and then code that together in what's called front-end development, which is your HTML, your cascading style sheets, and your JavaScript. And then they want people that can also, on the back end, work out how that's going to work on a server and get some server-side interactions and send data back and forth and all the things that are associated with back-end development. So altogether, that's a full stack. Knowing those kind of definitions helps because we might be in a position where we need to recruit or even hire some developers to help us build some learning solutions. So that's one reason why to understand code. Another reason is you might get to a point where you're developing in an e-learning authoring tool and need to know some code, specifically JavaScript. One thing I I can never stress enough to people is when we use these e-learning authoring tools, what we're really doing is web development. And we're using kind of these simplified tools to do all the web development for us. So for example, when we open articulate storyline it shows us a blank screen and we get to put things on that screen like say a few shapes and some text and all that kind of stuff when we hit the publish button what it's doing is it's publishing out all the html which is the kind of the skeleton of the of the web page and then it prints out the cascading style sheets which is kind of like the skin the look and feel the the layout of where things are going to go and there's the javascript which you can think of the muscles that kind of make things work. So when you click on the next button or you click an interaction on the screen, there's probably some JavaScript attached that's going to handle that event. And um, so if you have any variables that you're managing, you're, you're doing some math on the back end, that's all done through JavaScript. So knowing that that's how it's handled, it's kind of like this moment, like in the matrix where Neo finally understands that everything is all code and he can, you know, stop bullets and all that crazy stuff. 
I really liked your example of coding there, Joe, because as you were saying that, I really liked the analogy that you had about the the skin and the muscles. So in my head, I didn't really go to the Matrix, but I immediately saw like a Geodude Pokemon that the face or the rock of the Geodude was like the player and then like the muscles were the JavaScript hanging out. So that's where my mind went. So there's a little side tangent there. But I I do think it is important what Joe's saying about the coding. And he talked a little bit about HTML, the hypertext markup language. I do think that's important to have a working knowledge of. It's something that I certainly didn't know a whole lot about. My job has evolved to where I need to know more HTML. And admittedly, I've needed some help. So a soft skill and I think a life skill for that matter that I'd highly recommend and think it's critical to your success is building a network of people. You will find, especially wherever you're at kind of in your learning development journey, that you cannot know everything about this profession. You can't. Or you can have a working knowledge, but you certainly are not the best at everything in this profession. If you say that you are, you might want to take a look in the mirror because you're probably not. And I know my weak areas. I'm sure Joe probably knows his weak areas as well. So having a network of people that are doing the same job as you uh, all across the world is super critical. So So if I know that I have something coming up uh, that I don't fully understand, I can go on LinkedIn or I can go on Twitter. I can send a couple direct messages to people or I can put out a public post saying, hey, can someone help me? And because I've helped others in the past, people will help me in return. So you will find that this community, for the most part, most people are, are just lovely people and I feel like if you're in this profession, you do it because you like helping people and you like learning yourself. So again, it's not perfect. You'll see a couple prickly pears out there, but you don't, you don't have to connect with them. Um, But my point is don't be afraid to lean and make those connections, especially again, throughout your career, you'll find the, the longer you're in this, the smaller the community gets, kind of the deeper you go in. So knowing people, connecting with people, that can also help your employability chances. So if for some reason you go in and you lose your job, again, not necessarily your fault, but it could be an organizational thing you will know who to reach out to. And those people will also help you in your next pivot point. Yeah, that's another one. I can't agree more. Um, Networks, both internal and external. Obviously, if you're someone who's on your own or you're looking for a job, you don't have that internal network to leverage. So it's all the more important to kind of grow and, and leverage your external network. And, you know, networking can sound like a daunting or or disingenuous thing, especially for people like myself, it's an introvert, but social media makes it simpler and just kind of easier to uh, digest, I guess, for, for, or to process for someone like myself. So just a tip I'll share as an introvert uh, is to go into networking events with two or three goals in mind. And you can't allow yourself to leave or until you've met those goals. So there are goals like talk to at least three people or something along those lines that keeps you engaged and keeps you off the wall and engaging with people. And what I eventually found was that you meet enough people, you have enough colleagues that these events become easier to go to because you have 
people that you know and you can talk to and um, people you want to catch up with and see how things are going, as well as you're more generally interested in meeting new people and seeing where people are coming from. And um, networking just comes easier the more you do it. Obviously, with building learning products, it's also really critical to not only have a good sense of your content, but also a good sense of visual design. And what I mean by this is a lot of times you'll receive content that is very out of date. You might get training binders, you might get old PowerPoints, and being able to kind of take what I call the fire hose of content and being able to explain it in a way that's visually stimulating and then also is clean and modern is definitely a skill that you need to have as a learning development professional. Now, admittedly, I will admit that Remember, I was talking about how you can't be good at everything. This is definitely not my strongest point. I'm pretty decent at building out like some vectors and combining things. But as far as like building my own assets, it, it's not a skill that I that I have. But I do respect people that can do that. But I do always try to get somebody to help me just kind of look at it with uh, color boards and that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of great tools out there right now if you do struggle with this like I do. I know um, Adobe Spark is really great. I know Canva is really great. But knowing that you can do that and being able to articulate text in a visual way I think is super critical for anyone right now. Absolutely. You're, you're speaking my language now. So my first solo presentation that I gave back in 2011 was graphic design for the rest of us. The thought being that anyone can do basic graphic design. There's definitely a subjective element to it, but the excuse that, you know, I'm not an artist or I don't know how to draw really doesn't stick once you learn that the visual design principles are set in stone. There's some subjectivity to the application of those rules, but really you have to follow those rules to have a good visual design. So for example, green and red do not look good together because they have a similar contrast, I believe it is. So they kind of clash with your eyes. So unless it's Christmas, you really don't want to put green and red together. A principle that I'm always applying is contrast. When you want to direct someone's eye to something, you can use contrast. By extension, when you don't necessarily want to draw someone's eye to something, you want everything to kind of flow together, you have a low contrast. So learning these principles and knowing when to apply them is not really as subjective as um, it seems. So I highly recommend people just look into, even just Google it, just like basic visual design, graphic design principles, and get a cursory understanding of those because it can really go a long way. So segueing from that, I'd like to talk a little bit about video as one of the technical skills that people should be a little bit more familiar with. Uh, photography as well. What's beautiful today is we have these things in our pockets, these little rectangular magic boxes that let us capture images and video. And I think just doing a little bit of research to understand how we can use these things appropriately to their maximum potential goes a long way to capturing some video and, and images that are useful for different digital learning solutions. Just a quick tip that I'll give is, first off, whenever you pull your phone out of your pocket, wipe your camera lens really quick. Make sure there's no dust or um, finger streaks over, over the lens. That really does a, a lot to boost picture quality, making sure you don't have blurry images. 
And then just basic tips like uh, always make sure to, to hold your camera horizontally to make sure that you're not filming video vertical uh, because that might be good on, on Snapchat and apps like that. But when it comes to filming video that's going to be viewed uh, from a, like a training perspective, you probably want that horizontal view. And just hold your camera steady, you know, kind of your arms against your the sides of your body and just stay steady and things like that. Just basic little camera tips like that um, really goes a long way. And again, it also ties back into those visual design principles because really what we're doing when we're filming and taking photos is we're painting with light is how I've heard it described. So we're framing our composition and we're just letting the light, the existing light that's in the background or lights that we're putting up paint our picture for us. Video is being used more and more in our learning products, so it is critical to have a good grasp of it. There's a lot of great tools out there to create your video in after you film from your smartphone, and we recommend to get it down on your smartphone first before buying expensive equipment. I know that uh, Matt Pierce is certainly an evangelist of that as well, so we roll with Matt Pierce and his recommendations on that. Another soft skill that I think you need to be successful in learning and development is being a good steward of our profession. And what I mean by that is to be a myth buster. Know that there's no such thing as learning styles. Know that we do not have an attention span shorter than a goldfish. There are a lot of myths out there. There's probably a lot of myths in your organization. There are publications that your C-suite are reading that still publish things about millennials being genetically different than anyone else. So how do you kind of balance that when you know that that's not accurate, but yet people in your organization believe it? Now, I'm not going to, not telling you to go in and hit somebody over the head and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, because you'll probably lose your job. So you have to be a little bit more tactful than that. Um, things that I have done in the past, and believe it or not, I still hear it at the university too. I hear some of these floating around. Um, share share resources with people just, just kind of busting it. Um, I know that uh, Will Tallheimer has this debunker club that has a lot of great resources. Clark Quinn has written a great book on kind of busting these myths. So knowing those resources are out there and not only explaining why this is wrong, but more so like how we can kind of move past it as an organization, I think super critical because if you're not going to stand up for the truth in learning and development, who is at your organization? Those are great points. And along with that, I just want to add be skeptical about vendor claims. It's kind of interesting that I see people do that to a good degree in some areas, but then on the other, they really fall for the things that the vendors are saying. I think it's important for all of us as learning professionals to just be more skeptical when we're dealing with vendors so that we don't end up with these solutions that we paid for that aren't really meeting the needs of our training audiences, our end users, and our organizations that we work for, despite the claims that uh, a vendor made to the contrary up front. Finally, this last one that I have is a little bit controversial. I put something out on LinkedIn talking about mentorship. 
And really why I brought that up is I really think that if you are in this profession and you're a little bit further along than someone else, I guarantee you somebody's helped you along the way to get there. Whether that is perhaps like a professor in your master's program, uh, a peer, a colleague, a former, former supervisor, whomever, you've had help along the way. I guarantee you probably haven't done every single thing all by yourself. So for me, I think a very critical skill that you need to be successful in learning and development is paying it forward and mentoring others. I have made this a deliberate practice within the past year or so to really take time out of my week to let people call me, pick my brain, to teach people how to use Storyline, to go over someone's portfolio, to look at their resume, Anything I can do to help somebody, I'm going to do it within reason. I mean, obviously there's some things I won't do, but I just think it's my duty as a professional to give back and help others because think back to when you first got into this, if if you're, you've been around for a while, it was probably extremely overwhelming for you. So you want to be that good influence. Again, you want to be that good steward of the profession. And to me, it really puts the professional in it. And it's really fun to do. At least it is for me. And if it doesn't fill your tank, then that's your prerogative and that's fine. But maybe you could even make connections with others that you know it really makes them happy to help others. So if you do get contacted, point them in the direction of somebody that can help make their day. And even that, I still think that you're fulfilling the duty of helping someone out. Kara, I know you have good mentors that you've talked a little bit about on the show here today. And I like to see that you're paying it forward and mentoring others as well. When I first started off, what I really was hoping for was to be in basically like an apprenticeship where I would sit alongside uh, people that have been in the industry. Early on, I was looking more into like a web design, graphic design type role. And I really wanted to sit alongside people that knew what they were doing that could kind of show me the rope, so to speak, about how things work, how to do advanced things in programs that I hadn't learned on my own. And I never really got that. I always uh, sat as a, um, not a team of one, but the, the sole person on the team that knew the ins and outs of uh, various programs. So I kind of had to be self-taught. And now here I am 12 years into my career where I've gotten so far that I'm looking at how do I now pass this on to somebody else that was in the position I was in just starting out is eager to learn more about e-learning development or video production or something like that. So that's where I'm at now. It's kind of funny to see things go full circle like that. A circle of L&D. So we could probably make this almost like a docu-series if we really wanted to with skills that are critical to L&D success. Again, this is just our opinion. So if you feel like we missed something, if there's something that we maybe said that you agree with or maybe you don't agree with, we want to hear from you. So sound off, let us know what you think about what we put out there. And we really enjoyed talking about this. We hope you found it valuable. And again, for the Instructional Redesign Podcast, I'm Kara North. And I'm Joe Suarez. Thank you so much for listening.